maybe the whole revolutionary project itself is inherently against stories is not predisposed toward any serious place for stillness, for silence, for rest. Yo, what up? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we can bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And this week we're going to do something a little bit unique. Um, we are going to, because we weren't planning on doing this, but the episode, the main segment, ended up being really rich and really long. So we decided to kind of just release this as a singular special interview episode. Yeah? Yeah, this is like uh, when you just do like a bottle episode in the middle of a great television. Remember the, remember the episode of Breaking Bad when they just fought the fly in the laboratory for the whole oh, episode? Oh, yeah. This, this is, is like our that. fly episode. Okay. But, but the fly is apophatic theology and Marxism <laughs> or something. Cool. Yeah, so as Troy said, what we're going to do is we're going to basically delve into a, an essay by China Mieville that is called, uh, what is it called again? Silence in Debris Towards an Apophatic Marxism. And a colleague of mine here in Sydney named Darius, and I mess up his name in the interview, his last name, I say Safari, it's Saperi, um, and he'll explain where that comes from. But he is a uh, scholar of philosophy, literature, etc., and so he's going to help us break down this essay as well as a lot of related themes pertaining to Marxism, socialism, scientific rationality, revolutionary thought, and the possibility of thinking in genuinely creative, imaginative, transformative, maybe even transcendent or other ways um, that will get us out of any sort of tendency to reproduce the very systems that we're trying to contest in the first place. So stay tuned for that on the main segment this week. But there will be no shitty minute and no sticky leaves this week. I know if you guys only tune in for ranting and for recommendations... (laughs) I'm sorry, hit me up on Twitter, hit Troy up on Twitter, email us, subscribe to our newsletter at uh, patreon.com slash owls at dawn, and we'll be able to give you some some stuff that way. But definitely stick around because the episode's fire. Yeah, I was going to say real quick, uh, you know what else is transformative and transcendent? Hmm. Our Patreon. Oh, yeah. So as you were saying, go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn, and there you can support us through various tiers in which you can receive goods such as the monthly newsletter which we release, and access to the uh, parliamentary uh, uh, book club, or not the book club, the um, bonus episodes that we do for the parliamentary uh, tier, as well as um, the Patreon-sponsored episode. We have a poll going right now um, for a few different patron-sponsored topics, so make sure you get over to there and vote if you're a Patreon, a patron, and if not, then become one, please. Yeah, sounds good. All right, is that all the admin shit out of the way? Yep, let's jump into the main segment, yeah? Sweet. Sweet. So now we'll go ahead and jump into our main segment this week. As we said at the outset, we've got a colleague of mine, uh, Darius Saferi. Did I say it correct? Saperi. Saperi. Yes. It's a common mistake. Yeah, because it's the PH. Yes. It is a, a Persian... It's a Persian. Pers- uh, yes, it means uh, Seper means the sky or the celestial vault. Oh, Jesus. So <laughs> Did you give yourself this name? No, it's, it's <laughs> crowned, crowned upon 
Yes. Okay. Well, cool. Um, so Darius is a colleague of mine here in Sydney, and he is a lover of um, the history of, of literature, of wisdom, of <laughs> philosophy, and a scholar of all of those things there. And can you want to just give just a brief uh, bio of, of who you are and what you're studying and what your interests are? Starting with my birth or? Yeah, yeah whatever. <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> going back generations. Uh, well, I was born in Iran and uh, I came to Australia very young. Uh, I've been in uh, Sydney for a while uh, where I've been at the University of Sydney. And it's here that I have uh, studied religion, studies of religion and philosophy, literature. And uh, at the moment I'm doing a PhD, which is a history of philosophy or a history of ideas where I'm looking at Renaissance philosophy. In particular, uh, one specific Italian Renaissance philosopher uh, by the name of Pico della Mirandola, who wrote a very famous treatise uh, or, or text uh, called The Oration on the Dignity of Man. And this was meant to be a kind of opening statement or oration to open a conference that he was going to hold in Rome mm. in 1486, where he wanted to invite all the intellectuals of Europe to discuss 900 theses that he had picked uh, himself, uh, or he'd written 500 and picked 400 uh, theses ranging from you know, philosophy, metaphysics, theology, to science, naturalism. And he even promised to pay all the intellectuals to come. <laughs> and, he and he was 23, by the way. So, oh, nice. yeah, just Where did the ultimate on? Twitter thread. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, he was a count. He was an aristocrat. Uh, okay. He never worked. He just uh, never took up his part of, or he kind of gave his brothers his, his uh, part of the family inheritance, and he just paid for a whole train of scholars and, and translators to follow. This him is what I'm him. saying, man. You know how in Inventing the Future they talk about building a think tank for the left, like a Mont Pelerin for the left? That's what he kind of did, but for philosophy. <laughs> we just need these like rich philosophers with ancient aristocratic money to forsake their name and the tradition of being like wealthy snobs and invest in the development of ideas. We need more of that. Mm. Definitely. Uh, well, but this in this case, it's a kind of bad uh, precedent or omen because it never went ahead. The Catholic oh. Church got <laughs> they got wind of what he wanted to do, uh, and they looked at some of the theses and they concluded that a number of them were heretical. Mm. Uh, so the whole conference was was uh, canned or cancelled, um, and he had to flee Italy and so on. Anyway, I was saying that this text, the Oration on the Dignity of Man, was meant to open the conference. It's a very famous uh, text in the Renaissance. And so I'm looking at Pico's work, his whole body of work, uh, and in particular the influence of Islamic philosophy on uh, his philosophy, mm. um, uh, this, you know, including Averroes and Avicenna and figures like that. Mm. And what would you say your broader interests? I mean, I've mentioned you a couple times on the podcast, so oh, right. listeners who follow the podcast have already heard your name. Um, because I've mentioned how you and I get together and often vent frustrations and um, allow... Uh, allow we have shitty hours, you could say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, so what would you say beyond your interest in literature and Renaissance philosophy, what are your broader interests and maybe concerns with um, contemporary culture, uh, the history of ideas, things like that? Because I think that'll serve as an interesting sort of um, transition into the topic today, actually. Okay. Um, I think in terms of what you and I have been discussing 
in the last few months, what we've been frustrated by, it, it all seems to revolve around uh, our search for things that have traditionally been classified as mythos, for instance, as uh, dealing with that uh, that dimension of life that is not um, able to be accounted for through rational means, uh, through uh, the kind of ordinary language that we use to systematize and classify, um, I think, a sense of enchantment, uh, a notion of, of wonder, going back to the whole definition, Socrates' definition of philosophy uh, as, as beginning with, with wonder, a stance of, of wonder being you know, enraptured or enchanted in some way uh, in the world. Uh, these things seem to be either given short shrift or, or they really have no place. Uh, even in academia, uh, academic philosophy kind of may make gestures toward uh, the history of philosophy and, and you know, the way that ancient philosophy had uh, a, a mythic element in it. Um, but I think very quickly you just leave that all together. Um, and that is part of, I think, uh, a hegemonic kind of uh, singular model of of being human that we are being drawn into, uh, where all the other alternatives are are being expelled or or uh, made invisible, uh, particularly those that are, uh, I think, uh, either they they go back to kind of traditional older models of. Uh, you know, what it is to be human, or they clash in some way with uh, a, a notion of the human that is beneficial for the current system. You know, a, a being that produces that, that mm. you know is a kind of output machine. Uh, whereas, as soon as you go into the realm of mythos, of uh, enchantment, of wonder, uh, and maybe a being that is seeking something that is more than mundane, something mm. that is, uh, if you don't want to say transcendent, then, then something that is beyond what is here. Uh, all of that is is problematic because uh, it is is not inherently productive. Mm. Uh, it's disruptive. Uh, it's a space where uh, I think you know, there is nothing to be mined or extracted mm. very very easily at That's all. Right. In a way, in a way, it, and this I think will serve as a good transition maybe into this essay that is going to kind of frame our discussion that we can work out from there. But it's almost as though your frustration in, in political terms, we might say, is that there is no capacity for genuine transformative or revolutionary or sometimes people might say radical thought because the kind of system in its hegemony slash hegemony, however you say that word, <laughs> um, it, it, it's that it um, it kind of dictates the small parameters in which we are able to think about politics, culture, society, art, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And those things are themselves encased within a larger dominating logic. And so it's almost as though your frustration, not intentionally, it's not like you're trying to be reactive in a sort of like revolutionary tone where you're trying to say, well, here's the capitalist system, I want to smash it so that I can be free. It's almost starting from a different frame, but kind of articulating something in like a, a parallel to that, which is actually I'm, I'm concerned in trying to release these flows of potency 
um, whether it's in kind of reclaiming something, you know, in a more traditional sense or manufacturing something in, in the future or realizing something or creating something that just simply is completely qualitatively unique and other and um, uncompromisable in itself. And so there's almost like in the way that you articulate these other notions, these notions that are not dominated by contemporary hegemony, is that there's almost like a revolutionary element within them, mm -hmm. in their transcendence, or in their more than, their beyond. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. That's, that's exactly their value. Okay. You know, um, I was thinking, Austin, you just mentioned the, uh, the idea of this like transcendent other mythos that um, exceeds the, the given, and how that's sort of in parallel to the we need to smash capitalism so we can be free thing. <laughs> And as, as I was you know, reading this essay we're going to talk about in a second, I kept thinking, you know, I had a, a teacher once who said in contrast to philosophy beginning with wonder, that philosophy begins with the what the fuck, um, meaning <laughs> philosophy begins when you realize that the current coordinates of the coordinates of the current system sort of interpolate something, maybe even yourself, your identity in a way that just does not make sense or that mm. sort of programs you for suffering um mm -hmm. and that when you realize that you say what the fuck and that leads you to expl intellectual exploration that's and amazing it, yeah go ahead yeah and i kept thinking that you know it seems to me like the the important thing here is to think about how both of those work in concert yes so the way in which the what the fuck moment comes out then leads you to well I, now i have to imagine something different than the current system in order to get out of this state, right? And that's oftentimes the impetus towards wonder, right? It's not always just the extremely privileged person sitting in their their uh, lounge chair, you know, drinking uh, a martini and thinking about, <laughs> you know, some idealistic version of a better world. That's just not how it actually works, right? It always, it seems yeah. to always work from um, a place of tension and contrast. Yes. And resistance, yes. Yeah, and resistance, that's good. Hmm. It, it makes me think of um, sort of, we might say, a uh, like a secular theodicy in reference to maybe the way the barber talks about the secular as being a different kind of transcendent plane, right? The, the inability to let the what the fuck flower mm -hmm. is precisely because the current system is a theodicy. It's like... It's that it has an answer for everything. It will justify everything for you. I mean, this is one of Marx's mm -hmm. criticisms of religion, is that religion can justify injustice, right? And uh, when people are suffering and screaming out, it says, no, don't worry, this is all part of God's providential plan. Mm -hmm. Capitalism does something similar. It says, no, 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 don't worry, we just need more efficient markets. Or don't worry, you just need to consume more. Or don't worry, we just need to have better access to credit. Or something along those lines, right? Don't worry, you just need to have uh, better equity stake in your diversified portfolio in your mutual fund or whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so it's always got an answer. It's a theodical type of um, orientation, which again, just makes me think that as much as we try to pat ourselves on the back for like breaking free from the strangleholds of the mystification of religion, that there's still a lot of mystification in our quote unquote secular age. Mm. And then the question is in terms of uh, critiques of the current system of capitalism, uh, when you get to the stage where you have a kind of codified tradition, an alternate political economy, in this case, say, the Marxist one, 
uh, what happens when that itself uh, becomes theodical as well, when, mm. it, when it produces a theodicy so that it constantly offers solutions and therefore for, forecloses uh, any possible disruptions, then uh, you just have these alternate kind of theodicies and, and all of them are closing down the possibility of, of really questioning and, and the resistance is always then subsumed and encased uh, once again. Mm. And that's uh, part of what this essay that we're going to discuss, I think, tries to, tries to resist. Mm. Uh, so, Troy, do you want to give a sort of brief intro to this essay, who wrote it, and kind of broad strokes, and then we can unpack it and then go from there? Yeah, I mean, I don't know as much about China Mayville as maybe you guys do, so his biography and stuff might be... No, that's... I mean, he he um, is an author slash academic who is... Uh, he's British. I don't know what his background is. Do you know his background? Um... It's mostly literature, I think. I think, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, he wrote a pretty he, famous trilogy of sci-fi novels, I think. Yeah, he's written in sci-fi, and then he recently wrote wrote one on um, uh, like a nonfiction book on the October Revolution that was really popular. I think it's like one of those uh, a verso book that got really pushed pretty heavy by them. I've heard him talk about it. I haven't read the book. Um, I'd like to. Um, so he has uh, uh, a sort of steep literary background which you can tell by when when reading this essay because mm-hmm. he draws yeah. from sources as varied as like i'm trying to think like nicholas of cusa to uh poets to like theologians like obscure theologians that like the average philosopher type like mark taylor that nobody fucking reads unless you're in like that world <laughs> right um so he has a very broad range of resources from which he draws which might be to his detriment but also to his benefit because mm-hmm. it can seem a little scattershot i think at times yes um but so there's a, a liter a heavy liter- literary background um and i would say first and foremost he kind of comes through thought as a as an artist i think more than anything mm-hmm. and so but yeah that's kind of all i really know about him as an individual yeah so the article is called um apophatic marxism or a silence and debris towards an apophatic Marxism, excuse me. And um, the the basic idea, I mean, we've kind of already uh, briefly addressed it, is this idea of apophasis, right? Which, um, do you know what the Greek etymology is? Phasis? I don't remember what that is off the top of my head. Phasis, yeah, apophasis. You yeah, know, I don't, I don't know, actually. But it's um, it's connected to the idea of negative theology, right? And so... Negative theology, at least in the Christian tradition and the Catholic tradition, is usually sort of placed in the uh, Middle Ages towards a number of figures um, who had a more mystical element compared to, say, what most people would know as something like, you know, the uh, like Dominican tradition of like Anselm and Aquinas, more of a rationalist um, theology stemming from like Aristotelian philosophy. The apophatic theologians, the negative theologians, had a very different orientation in that they wanted to sort of preserve the transcendence and uniqueness of God by refraining from saying anything positive or predicating anything about God mm-hmm. in the same way you would about sort of natural objects. And so to sort of preserve that distinction between nature uh, as God's creation and God, they would only say what God is not um, and often involve themselves in like seeming uh, surface level contradiction. Um, and in order to sort of preserve this notion that um, both that you can't say anything positive about God and also that whatever you say um, 
is never definitive because our language in some sense is unable to sort of grasp um, or represent the truth of God in the way it can with, say, nature. Mm. Yeah, he uh, he mentions, and I remember when I was uh, at Nottingham doing my master's in a department that was very heavily indebted to um, via negativa and sort of certain Neoplatonists, we studied this theorist or this, this ancient thinker, I don't know if you would say ancient, but this... Um, Neoplatonic thinker named Pseudo Dionysus, uh, the Areopagite. And he has this litany of things where he lists basically what God is not. God is not soul, is not, he's not finite, he's not this, he's not that, it's not this, it's not that, it's not this. But it's never like when you read a systematic theology today or if you go to an average church today that God is holy, God mm-hmm. is great, mm-hmm. God is infinite, God is beneficent, right? It's always God is not, not beneficent. <laughs> You know, right? It's always a negation of these words that we generally ascribe to reality. It's an inversion, if you will, of our sort of maybe mundane positive experience of things. And um, what I thought was interesting is, so Mieville wants to draw on this rich tradition and kind of infuse Marxism with this. Uh, Can you kind of say something, Darius, about what he's trying to do? Why does he want to infuse Marxism with this apophasis. Right, right. Um, I would also just point out that uh, this is a kind of worldwide religious, spiritual tradition that you find. Uh, You could point to Advaita Vedanta in India, which uh, the first word of that Advaita literally means non-dual, in that it is saying that things are not, you don't even say that all, all reality is one. You simply say it's not two, it's not dual, mm-hmm. uh, and so the kind of European or, or Western uh, mystical thinkers, uh, we find many times their parallels um, in other world religious traditions. Uh, I'm from Iran, as I said, and obviously Sufism uh, in or Islamic esotericism has an extremely rich tradition of. Uh, apophatic theology of, of Via Negativa. Many of your listeners will surely be aware of, of Rumi and uh, his uh, philosophy and, and his, his poetry is always revolving uh, around the unsayable. Um, and he, like Aquinas, famously kind of went quiet at the end of his life. And he said that everything that I've ever said uh, has been like uh, like tripe. It's, it's kind of hmm. worthless, it's valueless. Um, and this is, of course, a very, very common. Uh, so he would with, fucking with hate the fact that he's been memed all over to death. In- Absolutely, <laughs> and and like, yeah, if he was alive and he went on the internet and he found that his his like quotes had been mined and put in front of like sunsets and um, <laughs> like beaches and that like Anthony Robbins style motivational speakers were using him to like make people kind of more successful and have a better life and you know get what you want I think he would have been horrified um, is that the whole idea is to is to be shattered is to start with a kind of sense of mm. being being ruined I, I've told you before uh, Austin that that in Persian uh, classical literature or, or you could say uh, Sufi or, or mystical literature uh, there's repeated use of, of words that mean uh, ruin or to be ruined kharab. Uh, um, is one of them, uh, or uh, virane, which means ruin, uh, viranegi, ruination. Uh, 
these are things that could mean they 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 have a literal meaning of mm. of like um, you know buildings that are ruined. Hmm. But the metaphorical uh, or the allegorical meaning is, is very, very rich, and, and all these mystics and poets like Rumi lean on uh, that metaphorical meaning very strongly um, because to start with ruins is, is everything for them hmm. um, and to undo everything. And when you look at Rumi's life story, uh, it, 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 it kind of shows you that, that he was someone who was very, very prestigious, that he, he was an Islamic uh, scholar, a teacher, he was a jurist, and uh, he was very established in Konya, which is in, in Turkey today, um, uh, to which he, he and his family fled from, from uh, Iran or Af Afghanistan, today's Afghanistan, uh, because of the Mongol threat. And, and in, in mm. Konya, he became uh, very, very prominent until uh, he was 40 years old and this wandering dervish or kind of mendicant, a spiritual uh, a teacher, a holy fool really, Shamsa Tabriz, comes to the town and they have this uh, encounter, which is, I think you, can, you really should think of it in, in, as an event uh, in, in sort of a kind of Badiouian sense. It is, for Rumi definitely, and, and probably even for Shamsa Tabriz, the, the other figure, this is an eventual encounter. Nothing is the same afterwards for either of them. Obviously, we, we have Rumi's side much more. And for Rumi, it's an encounter with everything he doesn't know. Uh, he, has, mm. he has always been prized for his, uh, his explications, his expositions, you know, for saying, for teaching, uh, for guiding people. And suddenly someone comes uh, and he is, he is immediately struck by uh, being kind of unable to, to account for himself. Uh, and he's challenged and provoked by Shamsa Tabriz, who says to him, look, you... you are uh, kind of puffed up with knowledge. It's it's a very kind of Pauline uh, provocation he gives to him. But but you don't have love. Um, you, know, mm. you don't know love rather. Not you don't have love. But you, but you know what 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 do you have? You know, what could you ever say about about love uh, and the fire of love and um, and this whole encounter then really is what spurs Rumi even to write poetry in the first place. Um, before this, he's he's not really a poet. And after this, he can't stop producing. Uh, there's just an outpouring of constant, uh, ebullient flow of lyric poems um, that are always about, in, you know, seeking and, and being drawn towards uh, the transcendent and and uh, the divine. But then al always the the frustration and the um, the collapse of the struggle, the, the search to, to, to say uh, or to speak that moment of, of unity um, and the inevitable crash into, into the, the limits. Um, and this is, I think, therefore, something that is, it's a very rich resource uh, that Mievel wants to point to. Uh, I'm not sure, I can't remember if he mentions Rumi, but he mentions Ibn Arabi. He mentions a lot of, you know, beside Surya Dionysus, a lot of other figures from around the world uh, who, who are, have been in this tradition of, of pointing to the limits of, of language. But, but in terms of the, the political aspect of this, to go, to go into that, I think uh, he's very concerned with um, what, what you call the theodical element um, in capitalism. He sees that as being reproduced, I think, in the Marxist tradition and in, in the critique of capitalist political economy. He thinks that uh, it has really been encoded through a kind of logic that is uh, either technocratic or is 
predicated on uh, certainties. Um, he talks about uh, developing a politics of the unsayable. Uh, he mentions the need for a critical theory of political intuition, which is a very intriguing statement that I, I don't think he really develops fully enough. Um, and he poses the, the possibility of emancipatory action, uh, not from certainty, but from lack. So lack is, is the engine or the, the motivating, the provoking factor in this. And that's why I mentioned uh, you know, Rumi's and, and other mystical poets um, using the word ruins and ruination. And in fact, um, the, the, this whole project, the wider project that Mievel's writing this essay for is uh, all tied to uh, a kind of politics of salvage. Hmm. Um, that Which is the name of the website that he runs, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And even, I think, Mievel's other work, his writing, um, which is classified as part of this movement called the, the New Weird, a lot of it is is um, it's it's speculative and it's it's science fiction uh, work that really uh, prioritizes ruination and and a sense of uh, you know beginning from from ruins and and trying to work from that and to salvage uh, through the ruin not to not to begin by uh, kind of complete uh, enclosed systems but to begin with the kind of either, either fragmentary uh, kind of uh, response. Or even to begin before that, with with um, you know being unable to say anything uh, of of, um, of of apophasis of, of not knowing of not uh, of not being able to account, and he also talks about uh, I think elegy and mourning. So he, um, as Austin said, relies upon a lot of literary and, and poetic kind of tropes and language that he's marrying to political economy and, and to uh, political praxis. Um, and, and it's very useful, but it also, uh, as you pointed out, Austin, uh, runs up against constant limits, I think, in that he's trying to synthesize um, philosophy, theology, and also a, a, using a lot of concepts and, and, and terms that really make more sense in a, a literary uh, frame or, or, or an aesthetic frame. It's it's a very uh, aesthetic essay and wants to think through the limits of uh, the Marxist tradition by drawing attention to I think the the need for a, a richer aesthetics mm. uh, in, in in Marxist political economy. Right, because I mean he basically he kind of starts with the idea that uh, he uses was it. Fuss and Frim, or whatever these, I can't remember the names of the academics, but that they talk yeah. about how that uh, the Marxist project is essentially a type of um, enlightenment rationalism. And what they mean by that is probably what we would talk about as like some kind of positivism, right? That mm. we need to know more, we need to um, analyze more, we need to, as certain Marxists today would want to say, we need to have a grasp on the material conditions, right? We need to have a structural and material analysis. And what that means for a certain form of like positivist Marxism, or what we might call a cataphatic Marxism, which is the opposite of apophatic, is that you need to be able to say as much as possible because that demonstrates that you know more about the world and if you know more about the world then you can heighten the contradictions and then you can motivate the working class to understand their predicament better which will motivate them to then uh, take over and so that the more you know um, the more class consciousness you have and Mieville is kind of trying to circumvent that. Troy, 
what I know you you read this and you said you have some thoughts. What what are your initial thoughts? <laughs> well, I have more complex thoughts for later, but you know, I was just thinking as you were talking about that, Austin, that although medieval comes from a very different point of view, um, this is pretty similar to this idea of the of the Marxism stemming from the radical enlightenment um, and being a project about certainty is really similar to Cohen's obstetric model. Right. Right. And there's a reason why Cohen began the book that we read um, for our, our book club talking about epistemic humility. And I think although he's coming from an analytic philosophy background and Mievel is coming from this extremely different background, um, there's a somewhat of a commonality there. Right. And seeing that, you know, a, a leftist project should not make the same form of mistakes or formal mistake that um, sort of neoliberal capitalism does and the ideology behind it. And so that means sort of not necessarily giving up on knowledge, obviously, or the mm-hmm. project for uh, certainty, but but understanding um, the limits that come with that and then actually seeing um, those limits as being a, a, like a freeing or a liberating thing. You know, yeah. um, he began this essay talking about this section called Knowing and Its Discontents. And um, he talks about how like the, the notion of uh, seeing politics as being about waking people up from, from their sleep or the, the, or the wake up sheeple um, comment, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. That that's in, just incredibly stupid, right? Uh, as if you're going to like create epiphanies in people by showing them their, you know, giving them their class consciousness or whatever. And I was thinking, you know, it's so true that one of the most radicalizing features for me growing up was in the 90s in America, Rage Against the Machine were this incredibly formative, uh, like, you know, media experience, like being able to listen to their music and seeing how they just said, you know, fuck you to everything um, authoritative <laughs> in the country. In the 90s, when in America, the general notion was that things are going extremely well and there's no problems and we're set for life pretty much. It was the end of history, right? Um and that they, Rage Against the Machine could not exist right now. Like they would be either, they'd have to be ironic or they just <laughs> wouldn't be good. Like they would just be kind of like laughed off. Mm. Um, and there's a reason why I don't think anyone talks about them anymore because they were formative for a time in the 90s and then they kind of served the purpose. Now we kind of have gone past that, right? And you can think of them as just being one example of how uh, we certainly can't have this mode of, we're just trying to wake people up um, by giving mm-hmm. them or like transplanting knowledge into them. Um, sort of like a, uh, uh, the notion of the, with a pal- uh, Palo Freire calls it the, like, the banking notion of knowledge where you're just kind of transplanting knowledge into, into a student rather than like helping to transform the conditions. Rather than which conscientization. Yeah. Right. A transactional model of knowledge. In, in yeah. Sense. Yeah. It's interesting. It, it makes me think of the liberal late night or the liberal media's kind of discursive tendency oh, that is all God, about yeah. this. It is. Right? It's, it's about it's, lecturing and hectoring. And right. Like Bill Maher's whole thing is, you guys are fucking idiots. Don't you fucking get this? You fucking fucking idiots. Yeah. Right? Sure. And he f- and all the s- satirists that you're thinking of as well, right? Yeah, like the yeah. Seth Meyers and the um, Noah's and the fucking... Colbert's and yes. again, it's the same yeah. sort of thing. Like, don't you guys get it, you idiots? Sure. It's obvious. But then instru- it's clear. Sure. The instructive thing about Bill Maher, though, is that the people that he's calling idiots and trying to quote unquote teach or whatever don't watch his show, and he knows that. 
It's purely <laughs> so, at the so level of enjoyment church. for people yes. who agree. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's it. absolutely Let's church. Let's do church. Yeah. That's it, man. It is at the level of enjoyment. It's total self-referential jacking off. Yeah. But it, I think this was less dominant when it began, right? Under under Bush, um, it was uh, not John Oval, but who? John who Stewart. Before, John Stewart, right. It, it really began there. And there it was... I think it was a little bit more humble, the, the whole kind of satirical takedown, um, whereas now it has reached a kind of, it, it, it's so predominant, as, as it, it has become a response, whereas I don't think it began uh, as a serious like political response. It was just purely humor, satire, and, and it was really you know, a kind of anarchic in a sense. But now that it's become a model, mm. uh, it, it just points to another way that is uh, for, for many of us, I think it's clear that it's it's a failure, uh, that, well, and it's that, only you know, buttressing the extreme center. Even exactly more. right, and, right. And I think that's part of what Mievel's concerns are: is that what what appear to be useful responses, just just because we feel the pressure to say something, do something, you mm. know, to critique, to to you know, we, we, something has happened, and, and and we can't we can't tolerate it, so we have to all tweet about it, write about it, um, you know, be angry about it, be outraged. That whole production of, of output and response, um, t- t- to Mievel, I think, only exacerbates the problems because it, it, it grounds them, it solidifies them in a sense, it, it gives them uh, more purchase, uh, and it doesn't really undo them or critique them in any, in any serious sense. Um, but the, the harder thing, I think, um, is to step away, maybe, in, in many cases, and, and instead of rushing to to respond or to formulate uh, some kind of a, a response, um, even if that feels more uh, uncomfortable, he's, he's thinking that, that we would be better served by uh, staying in that in that zone of uncom- you know, discomfort. Uh, and his point is really that many of us, even in the in the kind of intellectual uh, circles who are you know have a more sophisticated critical response uh, to capital. Uh, in this case, yeah, primarily, he's thinking of the Marxist tradition. Um, even there, there is this habit that is a, a kind of training of of the mind. And I think he's really trying to talk around uh, consciousness itself, about perception, how reality is perceived, how we how we speak to one another, um, and and all the problems that come from habituation uh, in mm. in all those fields. Yeah, it, I was going to say, he says something about how communism is unsayable, capitalism is unspeakable. Right. And what he means by that is that communism is this thing that is beyond. It is, you know, maybe somehow attests to the, the negative, the via negativa, right? Or the, uh, the, that which is not um, incorporable into definitive language. But then he says, but also capitalism is unspeakable. And he means the horrors and that those horrors lead to lamentation, to lament, to this outrage. You know, people say that it was an unspeakable horror. It's an unspeakable tragedy. Um, I don't have words for this. You know, I oftentimes feel compelled sometimes when a friend is venting something to me about a frustration or a traumatic event, I say, listen, I know words are insufficient right now. And because there is this sense in which what the fuck can I say to make you feel better? And a lot of times we feel a pressure maybe to always try to put a Band-Aid on something with words. But Mieville wants to say that the there is no Band-Aid 
for the horrors of capitalism. It is beyond that. But then at the same time, you can't just simply offer up uh, a panacea. There is no big Band-Aid, and so therefore we need to have some other mode. And something that Troy said a minute ago that I thought was really interesting is this alternative mode that would allow us to deal with, cope, work through, struggle against the unspeakable horrors of capitalism is for Mieville not something that is just different in terms of content, like we just need more information. It's the opposite of that. It isn't the probabilistic model. It isn't the positivist model. It isn't the scientific model. It is something else formally speaking. And Troy, you mentioned that a minute ago. Can you talk a little bit about how there's like that that formal difference that is ultimately driving his concerns here? And maybe even the formal difference that is driving like Cohen's frustrations with Marxism? Yeah, I think that the the general idea that I was doing connect, connecting Cohen's critical project is that you know his critical project is one of reconstruction, right? Deconstruction and reconstruction in the same spirit as as Marx, but doing it and you know he called it the the no bullshit Marxism. Um, and Co- Cohen says that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and, I like uh, that. <laughs> and, and I think sometimes that gets misconstrued as like a let's do Marxism but not use technical language, which is just not. Accurate. Uh, right. Make it digestible for five year olds. Let's not use abstractions. That kind yeah, it's of thing. not that. It's like the, yeah, yeah. the Harry, was the Harry, Harry Frankfurt wrote the wrote the you know on bullshit book, which right. is basically just like um, technical language. When I use it, it's good, and when other people use it, it's bad because I don't want to have to learn it. Um, <laughs> right. It's not that. It's more of a. Um, it's it's about being precise. One, but also about um, sort of incorporating what we know about from other disciplines about ourselves into um, our theory and most principle of which is this kind of epistemic humility, right? That we understand from everything from the hard sciences to psychology and social Mm. science. Um, And, you know, I think the interesting thing here that, and this is really a question that I have for both of you guys and especially Darius with your history and this stuff. Um, There's one point when Mayville quotes, I forget, the name of the physicist, but the quote is, we live on an island surrounded by a sea of ignorance. Mm. As our island of knowledge grows, so does the shore of our ignorance. Mm. And I, I love, I've never heard that before, but I loved it. Mm-hmm. And it just makes me think of, you know, this is a guiding principle that I think that all forms of knowledge have to grasp, especially the dispersed kind of, you know, knowledge domains that exist today that are almost isolated from one another, they can get this sense of, well, if I can just sort of figure out my one narrow knowledge domain and, mm-hmm. and exhaust it, then I've gained all the knowledge. And that's just so incredibly ridiculous given the fact that all different domains of knowledge interconnect. This and is a different kind of God of the gaps argument, right? It's like, well, we don't have the argument yet, but we just need more information. Exactly. And that that gap that is in our knowledge right now, don't worry, we will... Physics will fill that in because physics has the tools via the scientific method. So therefore, the gap is the scientific method that is the guarantee that one day we will be able to have a theory of everything. However, the more that scientists fucking study quantum physics, the more that they work, the weirder it gets. The more they're like, how do we reconcile that with Newtonian physics, which works at the macro level? So it's like that age old thing. The more I know, the less I know. 
you, I, I was talking about this with a friend last night, actually, on my way home, and she was like, oh, how's your project going and stuff like that? Um, and I was like, oh, it's great. I was like, but, you know, I just feel like I'm getting further and further into a sea of nothingness. And she's like, I know that. And I was like, <laughs> it's almost like you walk through a door, and then as you walk through that door, it, you get introduced to a thousand other doors that you didn't know existed. And then you walk through one of those and a thousand other doors. And then you think, okay, well, that's okay. I can just go back through the door that I just came in or that I just walked through. And then I can just go in through another door and I can experience those. And you think that those doors stay, but they don't stay because they've (laughs) moved. moved. So you go through, you go back through the door and you're like, wait, this is a different door. But it's like, no, no, this is the same door. It's just now the door has changed in the other direction as well. And there's this constant disruption and uncertainty. And I, too, was really drawn to that metaphor, Troy. So, sorry, I cut you off. Keep, yeah, here's keep going. The thing. Here's the thing, though. That's, there's two different interpretations of, of this sort of discovery about human knowledge. One is, and I, like, I think I personally like this one better, um, is that everything is in principle knowable. But at the same time, the more you know, it widens the gap of the things you don't know necessarily, such that you will never have exhaustive knowledge. And in fact, you will only ever have more that you don't know. So you can imagine that like, you're trying to make a map of all of the universe, of all of space, right? Mm-hmm. But space is also expanding faster than the speed of light, faster than you can possibly travel. Yeah. So the more you explore, actually, the more that is left unexplored. Even though in principle, you could eventually explore everything and map it. Right. So and that, you know, that kind of notion goes all the way back to, I mean, the founder of the Enlightenment, Kant, said basically the same thing. He -hmm. called the effect of or what can happen when you realize this fact, uh, mythology or the hatred of reason. You might realize that the more you know, the more you don't know, and then begin to hate reason and hate Mm -hmm. knowledge, but that you shouldn't. Right. This should actually end up being a good thing because it means the more the more you can eventually, you can never exhaust knowledge. That that, that never has to be a thing that's finished. Um, or it could be, the other interpretation is a sort of giving up on the idea as if knowledge isn't really worth it, isn't really worth the trouble since it's only ever going to increase uh, the aggregate of things that we don't know. And I feel a little bit less drawn towards that. And I know that the, the via negativa stuff can kind of go in both directions. Sometimes I hear mm-hmm. people talking about it and it's more like, no, 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 it's all about the sort of um, the increase of knowledge and the fact that knowledge never is static and it's always constantly transforming and changing and you can always keep saying things and keep knowing things. Um, but then other people get at it sometimes like, no, it's mostly about the mystical stuff, which is kind of rejecting the idea of knowledge. Um, and, I, and I wonder which of those does Mievel seem to be going towards? Because it seems like there's, it's going in both directions at certain points. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think he, he appeals to both of those. Uh, there's a moment where he points out that to begin with not knowing uh, and via negativa doesn't mean that you have uh, admitted uh, to, or, or that it necessarily leads to total ignorance. But I think um, he wants to retain some notion of, of partial ignorance. Um, and that's why he appeals also to Nicholas of Cusa and his his doctrine of the doctrine ignoranta or a kind of um, spurring on of of knowing through uh, through through an admission of of ignorance, um, which can can fit either of those models uh, that you just outlined, um, Troy. But but I think he's also concerned. At one point, he does mention the bad infinite, 
And when both of you were talking yes. about um, just before about how um, the more one knows, the, the the less one knows, and the greater there is this this drive and this pressure, then therefore to 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 you know um, pursue more and to accumulate more information. Um, I think that that is part of Mievel's concern that this is precisely the, the Hegelian bad infinite, um, and to get off that train altogether. Can you just briefly describe what that is for listeners? Uh, well, I think it's basically like, like sequential, s- sequential infinity, right? That you can just keep adding a number, uh, yeah. and it just endlessly increases. It's not a true absolute that is beyond maybe that which is quantifiable. Yes. Right. It's yeah. the mathematical infinity. It's the scientific infinity that we just need more and more and more and more, yes. and then we'll approach the absolute. As long as we have enough of that uh, in the sequence, right? Yes, um, exactly. And, and it's working within that framework that Hegel says is the bad infinite, whereas the true infinite is that which is sort of beyond that. It is the right. absolute in his in his work. So the problems are, the problem there is that precisely the presupposition that through accumulation you can finally eventually right. arrive at the infinite. And as you pointed out, Austin, that that is very much the model that we have. And sometimes we really are made aware of that when we criticize this thing we call scientism, for instance. Uh, associated with, I guess, the errors of, of positivism also. Um, and we've had you know, some very good critiques of that. I think of a, a great philosopher called Raymond Tallis, who's actually a neuroscientist, and he's uh, written you know, very, very strong critiques of the, the logic of scientism in philosophy even. Um, and Mary Midgley, of course, um, her critiques uh, of, of, of scientific logic. Um, but I'm thinking back, there was a, a great book written in the early 90s called The Cult of Information by Theodore Rozak, which isn't talked about very much anymore, but it came at a very uh, important juncture. Um, and that was when computers really started to dominate contemporary hmm. society. Um, and his critique was that um, as this, this burgeoning um, you know, uh, information technology revolution, as it was called then, was really starting to seep into, uh, you know, every facet of, of contemporary culture, uh, and even into, it, it was making kind of essentially very strong epistemic claims, and it was starting to inform um, contemporary epistemology. His critique was that there was a, an essential confusion between information and ideas, and that people who were pushing uh, the, the, the computer as, uh, you know, with a, a metaphor of understanding behind it, a, a mm. kind of model um, or you know, a master uh, metaphor for the human mind and, and human cognition, they were essentially using a, a variation of this Hegelian bad infinite where uh, simply through an accumulation of information we could arrive at a totality of understanding, whereas Rozak's critique was that, well, ideas don't work through accumulation. They're precisely different from information in that um, you can't just add up a a whole bunch of bits of information and get to an idea. An idea uh, is more like an intuition. It is uh, arrived at through either experience or simply some um, moment of intuition, exactly, a kind of uh, revelation or an insight, I think. Um, And... Um, he uh, Mievel does point out that uh, precisely uh, that we need a, a, a kind of theory of political intuition, which he doesn't really outline. I was wondering if, if you guys, if that struck you or w- what he might have meant by that. Well, I mean, what does it mean to incorporate uh, intuition into mm. political praxis? Yeah. Because that's exactly what I think a lot of people in 
political activism, left circles, Marxism, what they would kind of scoff at or be uncomfortable with, um, the notion that, that intuition or uh, this is kind of uh, back to a kind of religious language that many people mm. makes me, many people uncomfortable, I think. Well, we were talking before we started recording that Bertrand Russell criticizes Henri Bergson for Bergson's use of intuition as opposed to this type of calculable scientific positivism that was kind of prominent at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s that he's kind of critical of. And he says, no, there's a uh, there's a different rigorous type of experience that we can have that he he frames as intuition, which is, I guess, a term that his students recommended to him. It wasn't he kind of chose it arbitrarily. But what he meant more than anything is that you can have a rigorous analysis of internal experience, right. and that that is different than just oh, it's just a feeling, or it's just affect, or it's just this willy nilly emotive. Um, experience that I have, and I'm just going to go with what I'm feeling. It's more than that. It's right. it's pre-phenomenological, so it's pre-Husserl, yeah. But it's a rigorous investigation into the insights that you have. Um, you get somebody else, I think it's Samuel Alexander, who was a, uh, a British idealist who talks about empiricism isn't just simply observing things in the external world, but you can also have an empirical approach to concepts, which is what he says philosophy is. Mm -hmm. So it's it's an empirical investigation of concepts for Alexander. And so there's something in that that I think Mieville's trying to get at. And I wanna I wanna defer to Troy on this because I'm curious what his thoughts are. But real quick, I did want to say that that I think it's important also in Darius where literally we were just talking about this like last night or yesterday, whatever it was, <laughs> about how I think one of the frustrations to try to avoid that Mieville is trying to circumvent by advocating for a political intuitionism is this tendency of allowing, let's say, capitalism or political economy to set the terrain by which um, alternative or revolutionary thought distances itself. Because no matter how hard you struggle against that framework, in your struggling against it, ironically, you're informing it, you're infusing it, you're mm -hmm. inflecting into it, and you're actually giving it more power. Mm -hmm. And I talked about it in reference to um, to my book that's coming out, which will kind of deal with this in the logic of Sartre's Practical Inert, but also, let's say, the injunction of the superego, which is the more innocent you are, the guiltier you are. Or the way I would like to frame it, the more piety you infuse to something, the more power it gains. It's like a smoke plume over a fire. And even if you're fighting against that fire, unless you're actually quashing that fire or maybe starting a fire in a completely different realm or whatever, <laughs> um, you're still feeding that fire. You're still putting ash, or not ash, you're still putting um, like timber onto that fire, right, right? And so the question is, how can you avoid that? And that's where the formal difference is. And I think for him, political intuition is that alternative that doesn't just simply allow the playing field and the parameters to be established by the hegemonic logic, which I think he would criticize the positivist critique of political economy as doing, is that it just feeds into that formal tendency. And so then socialism will only ever be um, winning small battles as it's distancing itself in sort of putting a shiny gloss on the horrors of the system that really set the, the rules of the game. Mm -hmm. So, but Troy, I was going to let you kind of talk, sorry. Yeah, I think an important uh, point to make, at least historically, is that and I don't know exactly what Russell meant and uh, what exactly his argument was in critiquing Bergson, but intuitionism for analytic philosophers is you know, oftentimes kind of a, a negative buzzword, right? Um, or like an insult. And it comes from the idea that you know, intuitionism was usually used in, I think, just two major fields, psychology and, and ethics. 
and in psychology, psychological intuition is was basically like the methodological approach of psychology in the 19th century, right? And that's basically like let's look inside and analyze what I'm thinking, and then just assume everyone else does the same thing or has the same formal mode right. of thought and experience, which of course was very very unscientific and was rejected in favor of the more scientific model of psychology we have today. And then in ethics, intuitionism stemming from like the British. Um, intuitionists like G.E. Moore was kind of a how do we know what's good? Well, we know what's good by just thinking really hard about it um, while we're in between our cricket matches uh, and our sherries. <laughs> and when we do that, all of us, uh, you know, Oxford and Cambridge graduate students and professors will come to the same intuitions, and that must mean that they're true. Um, so mm. that was obviously, you know, very much uh, centered around their own experiences. Um, so it's used as an epithet, intuitionism, because of those sort of methodological approaches that intuitionism took. And that, of course, is not at all the methodological approach of Bergson or of the way intuition is used in other um, areas in philosophy or other disciplines. And so that's, I think, maybe where the mistake or the confusion comes in for someone who maybe is steeped in like the analytic philosophy realm as opposed to some other realm. Um, mm. But that yeah. does mean, and then you, you mentioned Austin, this idea of like a an internal phenomenology. There's actually even even in analytic philosophy of mind today, there's this, like a small kind of burgeoning movement for reviving the idea the idea of internal phenomenology by analyzing um, thought. Not is this as, the internalism versus externalism debate. Well, no, that that's a different thing. Um, okay. But it's more about whether or not there is a phenomenology. Um, besides just the uh, sort of experiential um, uh, phenomenal kind in the terms of like the way you see and hear and smell. Those are obviously phenomenological, right? But what about like thinking and cognition? And for a long time, um, you know, philosophers in the America and in Britain thought, you know, thought is purely intentional. It's the kind of thing that a machine can do. Um, This is where you get like, all of the functionalist arguments about uh, what the mind is coming from like Hillary Putnam and others. And yeah, pan, pan computationalism, mm-hmm. isn't that what it's called? Yeah, computational theory of mind and stuff like that. And that's yeah. all kind of gone by the wayside in the last couple of decades. And there's an even burgeoning movement there for thinking about the phenomenology of thought. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of a rising, it seems like everywhere, even in the le- least likely places. And I think that's super interesting because there's something about even argument argumentation um, and logic that's you can't fully capture with just pure syntax, pure, you know, moving around pieces on a chessboard, right? Um, the kinds of things that, that, that a machine can do by itself. Um, and that's really interesting, I think. And there, there may be some opportunity to like uh, some cross-pollination between um, continental philosophy and analytic philosophy here and thinking about what this internal phenomenology and the phenomenology of thoughts and um, what these things might be like and how we can kind of capture some of these more esoteric and abstract concepts um, without sort of being reductionist about them and trying to make them just the operations of individual symbols or something like that. Hmm. Hmm. What, do we, what do we think then about the idea of the... the the viability and then maybe even the value of a political program that intentionally pursues this. Like, it, it seems to be 
great for academics doing a podcast and maybe even for people <laughs> listening. They're like, yes. So it seems to at least at the surface level immediately, it seems to be like, okay, so is this just merely a personal endeavor? Like that you personally start to engage uh, in in these like non-positivist, non-scientific ways. And of course that would be that would be just a sort of like psychologism of I think what Mieville is trying to advocate. How does this play out politically? How does this play out socially? What does this mean? Like how do you build communities? How do you build quote unquote class consciousness or yeah. whatever it yeah. might be through the via negativa? And he does mention a couple like Marxists, like Benjamin Noyes in particular, who I really like. He's written books on Bedieu that I think are great. Um, but how do you incorporate this into a literal political program without it just sounding like woo-woo, right? Is this yeah. the part where we're silent? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Probably a few minutes silence. It's a, it's a huge problem, obviously, and he doesn't give any any solutions or answers. I mean, well, you can't. That would be like the opposite, well, right? Yeah, that would be a cataphatic apophaticism. <laughs> yes. Well, he does, yeah. He does seem to want apophatic and cataphatic Marxism to, to, to work together in some sense. He doesn't say how. Um, my prob- One of my basic problems with the essay is that it does, I, I don't think it thinks enough about what cataphatic Marxism allows or doesn't allow and precisely its limits and how it mm. may be the very cause of the refusal to uh, make any room for apophasis. And that has to do with the, the historical roots of, of the Marxist you know, political economic critique um, and its you know, post-revolutionary uh, history uh, and precisely uh, uh, you know, being a kind of something that comes after the Enlightenment and I don't think Mievel really wants to wrestle with that because it, it leads to some some basic kind of problems and contradictions that uh, I think the, maybe the whole revolutionary project itself uh, is inherently um, against or is, is not predisposed toward any serious uh, place for stillness, for silence, for rest. It is inherent, you know, from the beginning, principially it is it is about action. And uh, I think contemplativity is always going to have a difficult place in something like cataphatic Marxism, uh, which he doesn't really deal with. And he even does sort of normatively or, or he does seem to be positive about something that he calls a radical Prometheanism. Um, I, I guess he just means that in a general sense of a kind of just a political, you know, critical rebellion, a rebellious uh, you know, critical spirit or, or thinking critically. Um, but if you really take that, that word and, and that notion of Prometheanism in a, in a stronger sense, then, then it just brings back the problems because the whole myth of Prometheus as this uh, God or spirit who steals fire and therefore gives ingenuity and cunning to human beings is precisely that it's a kind of rebellion against an ontological metaphysical order mm. that it gives human beings this this unparalleled power to intervene, to, to you know, create um, and to themselves be artificers and makers, but it also, of course, is precisely the beginning of all, all the, the woes and, and the problems of, of human beings in that it never stops. It creates mm. uh, an endless thirst for greater ingenuity 
and for more intervention and more making. This is the logic um, of techne. Exactly, it is. Yes. It is. And, and so there, I think the kind of silent or implied partner in all this is a kind of Heideggerian critique of, of, of you know, uh -oh, misuse Troy. of techne. Oh, no, we, we shouldn't go there. But it, um, <laughs> it doesn't really, the essay is kind of limited in what it deals with technological or technocratic logic. Um, and how far apophasis can really help and how we can bring uh, an apophatic uh, tradition into uh, a world where everything does seem to be inherently dominated, even the, even the Marxist critique, by techn technocracy. Te technocracy. This is, this is what, so I've mentioned this on the podcast before, and I didn't say it clearly, but I've been thinking about this, that we tend to think of technocracy as being something very limited in, like, uh, you know, the American technocrats or the European technocrats like Macron, who is just relying on yeah. experts and explicit, like, scientific data analysis. Like and a panel of men. And, yeah, yeah like, like that it's using, like, social choice and public choice theory, and that that's technocracy. The technocracy is, like, means testing, and technocracy is, like, getting everybody in a room and asking them what they want and then right. going out and implementing it. But right. no, that... We need to broaden our understanding of technocracy as being something that is guided by this logic of techne per se, yep. as as kind of what you've talked about. Yep. A, and a if, machinery of formal uh, solution making, right. the production of uh, formal structural kind of solutions and and you know, answers to problems. which in the process engineers society, which yep. in the process transforms society in its own image. Mm -hmm. It makes it a technical society, yep. an instrumental society. Exactly right. That is always endlessly self-reproducing in its own image. This is it goes to that super ego injunction again. The more innocent you are, the guiltier you are. The more you live according to this logic, the bigger its potency and its scope for the limits and the demands that it imposes upon you, which yeah. means that it requires more piety and more obedience, which then makes it even bigger and larger, which then requires more, and it's this self-feeding, this self-referential feedback of uh, exponential increase. Exactly. Right. And so the question is, okay, if we buy that, and if we buy the idea that the Promethean idea is uh, a sort of subterfuge of the ontology, what would be, what, what, like for me, I'm kind of thinking that, okay, this is perfect. So this is um, a critique of the metaphysics of presence, and this is where Derrida and Deleuze and a metaphysics of difference is literally a transformation of that metaphysic of presence that... Um, that that literally cuts under, that subverts, that that destroys, and that actually offers a positive understanding of how to build a sort of revolutionary program that is conditioned by a different logic. Because it doesn't assume the logic of techne. It's very critical of that, and it wants to kind of work within a post-Heideggerian landscape and a post-technical critique. And, and it's trying to think from within a completely different metaphysical frame that would allow that for... Uh, for Troy, you might you might not love the Deleuze Derrida stuff, but I think that that Mayasu would fit into this. Badiou would fit into this, right? These sort of like post-metaphysical reconstructions of metaphysics. Those projects, Prozorov's text, I think might fit into this, right? Mm -hmm. What do, What do you think, Troy? Yeah, I think that you know the way you kind of encapsulate the idea of of technocracy is not simply being about like means and reasoning um, being elevated in, in our like political logic, but a bigger view of like this 
self-referential recreation of the status quo or uh, a system that can only spit itself out again. Um, I like that. And I think that, you know, all the different figures we're talking about would have a sort of similar critique um, of that kind of political logic. I wonder though, you know, Darius, you were mentioning that you don't think that either sort of the capitalist mode that we're talking about, or even the post-revolutionary mode of thought has room for contemplation. And I was really curious to, to know why do you think that is? I, I certainly understand why the, the capitalist mode of logic doesn't have room for contemplation, right? Cause it's not productive. We mentioned that earlier. Um, mm. But why is it that you think that the, even the post-revolutionary model of thought doesn't have room for contemplation? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's obviously harder to find, but I think it may very well be in a, a principial or a, a you know, first presupposition that is already locked into a, a, itself a kind of a mode of production. In this case, the production of revolutionary action, for instance. Um, and it's harder to see because it isn't, uh, it isn't structured by a kind of logic of value extraction, perhaps, in the, in the, in the post-revolutionary tradition. But I think um, it comes precisely as a pressure to act and to, to accelerate, perhaps, uh, the conflict, you know, you know, class conflict, uh, in order to bring about the, the moment of of revolutionary action, for instance. But I was thinking more particularly of essentially the whole positive, positivist Marxist tradition um, and where it may very well be the, the whole reason, asking if not the whole, you know, the whole reason the positivist Marxist tradition is, is limited in this way that we've been talking about is, is not because it may have presuppositions at the very beginning um, that don't allow for uh, any contemplative, any contemplative, uh, any any richness in in contemplative contemplativity itself. It's interesting. Baudrillard, I think, makes a similar criticism in *Mirror of Production*, that he says that Marxism is basically the obverse of political economy. That the critique of political economy is basically the obverse of political economy. And I think this ties into what I was saying earlier about even if you're trying to distance yourself from the target. In your distancing yourself, in that kind of dialectical negation, um, there can be a tendency to reproduce the very foundation of that target by which you're trying to distance yourself. Yeah. So there isn't a radical enough break. This is Deleuze's criticism of Hegelianism. That uh, well, one of his critiques is that you're um, you're still thinking from that framework of identity. We could talk about a, meta a metaphysics of presence or a metaphysics of identity, and when you do that you're still reproducing the notion of the absolute that frames the discourse in the first place in the, fr the frame of like Barber's text that we're going through, that you're still working within a plane of transcendence. And so the idea is, is how can you then think for Deleuze, how can you think of a radical imminence that would break from that tendency to reproduce the very logic of transcendental thinking or transcendent thinking itself? And that's why you get people like Badiou who talk about the event. Or I think even Sartre in the Critique of Dialectical Reason, I think that's what he's trying to articulate. It's why he says Marxism has stopped. What, what Sartre means when he says that Marxism has stopped is that he believes that there's something endemic within the logic of Marxism itself that reproduces 
by the logic of totality, we might say a dogmatic metaphysics that reproduces a sort of um, like tyrannical or a, um, gosh, what's the word I want to say? Um, well, that it reproduces the conditions of alienation, but within a different guise. And that because it's still thinking within what he recalls or what he refers to as seriality, which is his sort of reworked word for alienation. But it's still erecting mystification, but it's the mystification of being ignorant of your metaphysical presuppositions, which are dogmatic themselves. And so therefore, in your epistemological framework, which you think isn't metaphysical, you think you're just doing science, but really you're being epistemologically arrogant because you think you have the absolute in your back pocket, which again is that God of the gaps kind of framework. And I think that's where a lot of these kind of postmodern critics and post-structuralist theorists are kind of coming at this from, is they're trying to think like, what, what can we do, man? We have to think outside post-World War II, outside of these logics that seem to just reproduce themselves. And I think that's where a lot of this frustration comes from. And I know it kind of sounds maybe like I'm begging the question here because I'm kind of like circling around it. And I, I think that, that, yeah. that this is very difficult. And I don't really know what the answer is. And Mieville doesn't, doesn't prescribe anything. Um, so the question is, is how do you break from this, this what seems to be a loop? Um, but maybe it's not a loop. Maybe it's a Mobius strip, you know? <laughs> Um, that doesn't help. No, maybe it doesn't. <laughs> um, but but Sartre, Sartre refers to it as a spiral. He says you kind of like do. You recircle around these places that you've been before, and you recircle the terrain, but every time you do, it's at a different intensity or a different variation, a different speed. It transforms it. And it's that idea that I mentioned before of kind of like trying to go back through the door that you just entered, and when you go back through the door, the door has changed. And you enter a different world, and you say, I thought I just came from this place, but you didn't come from that place. Right. Because that place itself has been changed. And I think a philosophy of imminence can provide that. Like Barber says, this idea of the cause being preserved in the effect, but the cause itself being constituted by the effect. This idea of like expression through signification. Or, I know Darius would probably like the sort of Neoplatonic idea of emanation and reversion. Right, and I think that Mieva would want to prescribe something in that world, but I don't know that he has the resources, in this essay at least, to think that. Does that make sense, Troy? Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering: is part of the potential and promise of of contemplation as a mode of thought, because we seem to be locked into this um, this dual or this binary of like either we're reproducing the status quo or we're reactive towards the status quo. Exactly. You're right. Yeah, exactly. And so we need to break out of that so that we're not constituted by what is, but instead by what yes. could be. What could and be. Contemplation yeah, and contemplation is the can, mode can by even, which you achieve that. Can we just say real quick um, that, that even in the reactive that is reproductive, right? So yeah. the reactive is essentially reproductive. Mm -hmm. So you're either fully in it or you're um, on the outside, but just stretching the margins unwittingly in your reaction to it. Yeah. And that's the insidiousness of it, that it is unwitting, uh, but that if you dig down deep and, and you really analyze it, that, that there is a, always a reproduction of what is that is going on. And that's why the whole essay is, I, its strength is that it is constantly pushing for creativity, for I think a... Um, a new mode of art or an artistic mode of, of political praxis. Uh, it's sens the sensitivity of aesthetics that Mieville is trying to bring into uh, the Marxist tradition or the critique of, of capitalist political economy is, is 
precisely that it wants to draw upon uh, something that is like what the imagination does, which is it, it you know, allows is the vehicle in us that allows for what could be or, or you know, what might be to pour forth. Um, and here, I think it would it would be useful to put the essay in in, in some sort of productive tension, um, as difficult as as it is, given that the essay is still dealing with um, I think political economy largely. You could put it in productive tension with ideas from from aesthetics, uh, for instance, uh, the, the famous phrase of Keats uh, of negative capability, um, which is a mode by which poets, artists, writers uh, create precisely when they when they stop trying to formulate solutions and answers uh, for problems that they see in the world, or or um, it, it's a it's a creative and um, alternative or, or analogy to the Doctor Ignoranta of Nicholas of Cusa. Um, and there was a very famous essay written by a literary critic, James Wood, um, that I think was very, very useful. It came in the early 2000s, and it was a critique uh, of a number of writers like Don DeLillo, uh, like Salman Rushdie, like Zadie Smith. And he analyzed their novels, uh, Jonathan Franzen also, and he came up with this term that, that had you know, quite a bit of purchase for a while. It was called hysterical realism. And he claimed that these novels uh, were very much all spurred into action by society itself, by societal problems, by exteriorized um, ways of seeing, and that the flatness that came from these novels, a kind of sense of exhaustion, of tiredness, and um, was precisely in that there was no, uh, there was never any disruptive moments in them uh, because they were so busy trying to uh, provide solutions and, and try to encapsulate kind of the totality of, of society. He says, I, I've got here the quote, it's, it's very, very interesting. He says that these big, the, he's talking about the contemporary novels of ideas like Don DeLillo's um, Underworld, uh, he says, the big contemporary novel is a perpetual motion machine that appears to have been embarrassed into velocity. It seems to want to abolish stillness, as if ashamed of silence. Inseparable from this culture of permanent storytelling is the pursuit of vitality at all costs. Indeed, vitality is storytelling as far as these books are concerned. So I think what he's saying there is that uh, there was a... There's, really now plethora of books that are never really able to begin from a contemplative mode or from some moment of, of true rupture. Uh, they simply take the world as it is and then they endlessly refer to it and expand it and simply by this outpouring of energy it is believed that, that you know, some that you know, this is all that creativity is, and he's pointing to I think a problem in contemporary aesthetics that hasn't really been been worked through, and I thought that was a, a useful point of contact for Mievel's essay, um, and that precisely what's missing in all of this is a real encounter with with otherness, with something that's radically. Um, you know, outside of, of what already exists and what is.
Yeah, I was actually, I'm just trying to Google, um, I can't remember the name of the book, but there is um, an author who talks about the sort of, the mechanism, uh, uh, the, me- the mechanicism, the, the, me- the mechanistic nature um, of uh, sort of Marxist thinking. And he looks at, if you look at the 19th century, a lot of um, burgeoning ideas about the human are enamored with the notion of mechanics, right? And so there's a mechanistic nature to Marx's conception of the human. And that might be part of the reason why there is this, what, what you, in the quote, you said something there's like about, read the quote again? Uh, By James Wood. Yeah, what was the? Uh, he says that the contemporary novel is a perpetual motion perpetual machine. Perpetual motion machine. And you were talking about this, uh, this idea of how it is maybe that the revolutionary moment still operates according to a similar logic of production. And is it that? Is it this perpetual motion machine that, um, that, that what he identifies in literature, maybe we could say still kind of or is also present in the sort of progressive or revolutionary logic itself, that things are moving, they're moving forward, there is this constant perpetual motion, that yeah. humans are mechanistic entities like clocks. Exactly, or, and, and that we're uh, locked into it. And that, machines. Yeah, that, that there is no other way for us to be because yeah. history, reality is a perpetual motion machine and we ourselves are machines in some sense that simply act and we, we can't but be this way. Whereas um, I think we might really need to get out of that whole frame entirely and see what, what it is that maybe uh, you know, cultures and societies and traditions in a pre-revolutionary uh, history have, have how they have thought uh, and what their metaphors have been. And certainly you, you really don't find the kind of mechanistic logic at all, I think. And somehow the metaphor of mechanism has come in the post-revolutionary moment to, to dominate uh, not only epistemology, but I think even you know, culture, aesthetics, and then even now political praxis. This is the problem that even political social responses are completely um, locked into a presupposition about the human being that sees us as some kind of a machine that, that we, and, and this just forecloses the possibility of, of rupture through creation and imagination because we're not accessing it. I mean, it's there. I guess you have to just grant that we are creative beings. So it's a, I think what Mieville doesn't really explicitly say is that we need to uh, posit alternative presuppositions about the human being. And either he's wary of doing that or maybe he's just um, kind of, you know, um, his more literary concerns don't really push through with what is really, a, a you know, a metaphysical uh, postulation that the human being uh, is not only not a machine, but that we are inherently uh, gifted with creative and imaginative possibilities that are not only for making art and cultural products, but that w- we need to draw upon all the time, every day, in political and social relations. And even in a mode of critique, a political economic critique, we still have to be uh, beginning from a notion of the human being as uh, you know, endlessly creatively fertile, rather than simply uh, as a being whose limits uh, are foreclosed. And I think part of the problem I see with, with you know, Marxism and the contemporary left 
is that they, and you know, a lot of people I've talked to, academics here in political economy are kind of aware of this, is that there is a either a wariness or an inability or unwillingness to offer forth alternative notions of the human subject. Yes. They're seen as too normative, and, and you, you don't really need them anyway for the whole project of the Marxist political economic critique. It is a materialist methodology, and it's very successful in its methodology. Um, and there's, I think, for its adherents, some of our friends here, you know, there's no reason to tinker with that. And, and there's this sense of wrong turnings by incorporating theory when you get to abstract um, sort of recent turns, such as the turn to financialization, for instance, we have friends here, Austin, that critique that because they're worried about the loss of the, you know, the, the power of the uh, materialist methodology of Marxism. And that's fine, but uh, it, it really doesn't, um, it, it, it becomes a problem when you get to praxis because when there is no rich um, and, and you know, necessarily normative notion of the human subject, then you're, you're impoverished, I think, uh, practically to to really pour forth uh, what what could be and what is not. Yeah, hallelujah. Yeah, amen to that. <laughs> what was the, what was the phrase in the quote? Embarrassed to velocity. Yeah, embarrassed into velocity. Into I, velocity. I really like that. Yeah. It's velocity. Yeah, pressure to communicate. A, a pressure for acceleration that comes from some mm. uh, some embarrassment, some sense that uh, a social guilt. Exactly. I gotta yeah. have something to say, yeah, and a lot of it. Yeah, it, it reminds me that's a perfect description of like every TV prestige drama today, basically. They're right. all just kind of recapitulating the the Franzen Delilah type embarrassment right. into velocity. God, that's so interesting. I mean, we were just talking about that with regards to uh, a lot of contemporary literature yesterday. You were talking about your, some of your frustrations when you go to these events that. Um, is that kind of related to it, that this, this embarrassment to velocity, this kind of social pressure to conform to, again, what I would say are like the parameters of the dominant logic or like it's almost like the rules of the game and you have to play by those rules and if you're not playing by those rules, well, yeah. fuck you. Yeah, exactly. I was talking about this, the Writers' Festival we have here in Sydney, which is getting bigger and bigger and how uh, its its aesthetics, I think, it, are very, very limited by... Um, being able to really continually comment upon current pressing social and political issues. And the whole festival this year was dominated by uh, things that are really to do with the world of journalism, I think, or to, you know, news, current affairs, uh, let's talk about post-truth, let's talk about Trump, let's talk about Me Too, let's talk about what's happening uh, in our society. Um, and absent entirely was, was any was any notion or concern for creativity itself, for what it is that, that we even value in the arts and in writing, uh, and in the power of that, in the richness of the human imagination. And, and I do see an emotional logic to this, that, that you know, when we use words like embarrassment or guilt, they help us think through why we are kind of locked in to this, this very surface critique that reproduces what is even as it it, it so strenuously uh, and maybe even sincerely protests and and you know is outraged well it's uh, a debt it is it's a, it's, debt. it's a debt um this book that i'm reading by Eli Iacci talks about this that there is a philosophical debt to this transcendent plane that establishes the rules on which we play so that guilt is 
it pertains to this debt that we think we owe. And right. you have to keep servicing that debt. Yep. And you service that debt through the repayment of interest payments, right? Yeah. And, of course, that's speaking metaphorically, but there's something similar here that's going on. Yeah. Um, that there are, there are demands that are imposed upon people in the form of, like, structural readjustment programs, but at a conceptual level, that you must feed these restructuring, these austerity, um, these austerity restructurings that are taken away that, well, you can't think about the imagination because those things have been defunded. I'm using air quotes right now. Does this right. metaphor make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Right. These, these other things that maybe previously were taken care of in a sort of more robust social system, certain things are separated, and those things have, have to be privatized or just completely excluded. And nevertheless, um, you have to service your debts to these larger dominant ideologies perpetually. And you think that you're repaying your debt, but you're not. You're just, um, it's in the, in the realm of finance, they refer to it as venture financing, where a company, let's say in the Northern Hemisphere, gives loans to a country in the Southern Hemisphere, and then, uh, in order to survive, and then offers the products for their very survival by their company. <laughs> so they give you the loan to basically finance you to buy their own product, right? So it's this leeching relationship that only deepens and strengthens the uneven development and the dependency between the developed and the developing, right? And I think right. there's a similar logic here, that it's there is this debt that you must perpetually repay. And the more you repay it, the guilter you are. Yeah. The more you repay it, the more the infrastructural embeddedness becomes. And I think there's something similar, but at a sort of literary conceptual level from with what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. That's that's to put it in, I guess, a kind of economic logic, but but which, um, as you know, kind of does can be considered from a psychoanalytic point yeah. of view, the psychoanalytic analysis of of debt and debtor relations. Uh, from a more, I guess, uh, yeah, also uh, in the realm of psychology and psych psychoanalysis, y you could think of it as a kind of neurotic obsession, I suppose, in the in the classic Oedipal mode. You know, something that that you are locked into pre-rationally, um, instead of just breaking or even a, a proper, you could say, a proper hatred um, of of the status quo. Many of the critical modes are are really neurotically obsessed with it, and therefore reproduce it instead of really truly breaking and rupturing. Mm. It's also Troy. a theological logic, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the yeah. God, Absolutely. God demands some sort of fealty from you because he gave you the gift of the very existence by which you're able to have that status in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so it's the same logic and it goes all the, yeah, all the way back to like the Anselmian like forensic model of, uh, of sin and guilt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, we've we've gone really long. Uh, this has been fucking amazing, though. I love this shit. Um, this is my sticky leaves. Um, <laughs> but Troy, uh, I know I have been quite loquacious on my end, so I'll give you the last word. What are your final That's thoughts? That's nothing new, on... dude. I know, I know. I, I, it's like I say, man. I talk to think. I don't mean to be a fucking chin wagger, but I like. In my talking, I th that's how I like formulate my thoughts. I can see the thoughts. steam rising above his head as he's... Is my brain throbbing like... <laughs> do you see the veins like a, an erect penis? Oh, my head no, is bigger and veins I are popping out and it's throbbing because the blood is rushing to it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm mentally erect. All right, Troy, I'll give you the final thoughts on this one. What do you think about 
the essay, the prescription, or the lack of prescription? What, what, are, what are you feeling here? I don't know, man. I'm kind of shocked by this whole throbbing penis metaphor. I don't know how to think about anything now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I am... No, um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I really appreciate this discussion. Uh, obviously, um, Darius, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and talking about this stuff. I, I would love to have you on again to talk a little bit more about sort of the history of um, of the medieval thought and, and mm-hmm. that, that you've studied and worked on. Obviously, know a little bit about medieval Christian theology, um, and as Austin does from our background in in theology, but the yeah. the stuff from from Persian. Um, literature and theology and history is obviously very alien to us. And so it would be super fun to talk just in a totally geeky, non-contemporary uh, <laughs> way about about that stuff at some point. Sure, that would be great, yeah. I feel like that would get Darius's uh, brain erection to <laughs> trigger. <laughs> yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't use that metaphor. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've had that, but last five minutes trying to convince you to stop talking about that, Austin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, cool. Well, let's go ahead and wrap it up there. I mean, I'll just say I think one of the biggest things. So I've recommended that a couple of friends read this essay. I recommended it to Darius. I recommended it to Troy. I recommended it to my friend Alex. Um, one of the common re- uh, responses that I got was, "Who's this essay for?" Right. That's and a good question, yeah. that was like the immediate thing that I think Darius, you asked me, and then actually my friend Alex, and you didn't. It wasn't in coordination. He asked me as well. Like, who's this for? Yeah. And I feel like who it's for most, like, that it fits most perfectly are for people like Troy and myself, and maybe even for someone like you, Darius, even though you're less disaffected than I think Troy and I are. <laughs> but people who are, like, disaffected Christians uh, okay, or sure. disaffected Western, yeah, disaffected Western Christians. You know, like people who had a commitment to transcendence and then who now are, they Still find themselves, through that, yeah, yeah they, they find themselves in the political throngs of Marxism or anarchism or some form of like yeah. anti-capitalism, right. but yet they haven't really let go of their need for the beyond. Sure. And, and that there's a stirring within that isn't satisfied in a lot of contemporary um, yeah. political discussions. Whereas I think if you're like a, if you're like a fucking, you grew up in a secular environment, you never went to church and stuff like that, you might read this and be like, it just doesn't quite vibe with me. I still think that he would he would want you to take something from this, but I don't know if it'll resonate with you as immediately as it would for someone like myself. You're absolutely right, yeah. And, and what I said to you, I think, as soon as I read it, was that I, I, my worry was that it would precisely more or less only speak to people who have some connection with, uh, you know, who have a theological background or who have some commitment, a kind of psycho-emotional commitment to some of the language he's using, right. uh, even a term like apophosis for, for you know, yourself and Troy with your religious backgrounds. It, it, it really has a purchase immediately. Um, and if you have no connection with that, no familiarity with that, I was, I was worried that it may not really deliver very much in terms of provocation and, and, and inquiry. I wonder if it's not just for people who, obviously the, the Apophasis stuff has purchased for people with a theological background. Um, but I do wonder if, you know, Meville himself, I don't know about his uh, religious background, but someone who's more invested in the literary sphere um, yeah, as opposed right. to the more mm. purely mm-hmm. academic or scientific uh, mode of thought might find some purchase there as well, given that 
you know, literature and art in general is going to have this quasi-religious reaching for transcendence. Um, yeah, absolutely. That also might be an appeal. And when he does mention things like mourning, um, like grief, um, and there's a there's a wrestling with trauma, which is a very uh, contemporary subject, uh, you know, prominent subject in contemporary literature. I think a lot of essays are being written uh, about trauma or, or trying to write even through trauma. Um, and yeah, Mievel's essay would be productive for for anyone in in that field. Um, precisely insofar as that it may get us to think, get them to think about um, the potential, you know, potency and and value of things like trauma and ruin and and a, and a you know political praxis or aesthetic program of of you know starting with salvage, um, but also the the potential pitfalls of that you know and in, mm-hmm. insofar as trauma right now in being kind of everywhere um, in the contemporary culture and in art and aesthetics, it, it can very easily be subsumed back into uh, the logic of the status quo. Um, you see that in the most kind of unpleasant cultural products, things like what we call disaster porn, um, a kind of fascination Ooh. with apocalypse, um, and even going into the kind of rather tedious uh, nihilism of someone like Zizek. Uh, you know, it's the it's kind of taking Mark Fisher's idea of capitalist realism and then saying, and, and then just not really understanding that as a provocation and a, and a mm. you know, call to rethink and, and to begin with some vitality and freshness, but saying, well, you know, that's it. Um, and just to be fascinated in a kind of either a neurotic obsessive mode or, or even a titillating, a kind of titillated fetishization of, of destruction and apocalypse. And trauma as a trope in, in writing literature, I think, suffers from that. And um, there's been, you know, I think people are starting to think about that ever since that very, very famous book, A Little Life, came out um, by a, a Hawaiian-American author um, whose last name is very is a bit difficult to pronounce. Um, but it's a, it's a book with a tremendous amount of violence in it, and it all stems from a trauma of abuse um, in in childhood in one of the in one of the characters, and it is so um, I think dominant that it's so overwhelming in its violence and in its use of trauma uh, that it 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 really becomes in a sense um, it loses any claim it has to to really be you know, human in any sense, it, mm. it, it starts to verge into something that is you know, fetishized and is, a, 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 you know, a gratuitous form of trauma and violence. And so Mievel's essay should really, you know, maybe speak to people from a literary background and get them to think of, of how trauma and ruin and, and destruction can be enriching insofar as that it's not um, going to be you know, only insofar as that it's not going to be enclosed again in the logic of, of what exists. Hmm. Yeah, well, let's um, let's end there on some things to think about and consider in this extremely long episode. <laughs> but uh, yeah, awesome, dude. Thank you for coming on and chatting. And I'm sure that people listening have been introduced to a thousand names and a thousand books that they need to go out and look to. I know I have. I've been kind of like writing a couple. essay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, yeah. So, sick. So, we'll go ahead and wrap it up there. Yeah, Troy? 
Yeah, thanks so much, Darius. Thank you, guys. It was, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Sweet. All right, that was so good. Um, that was so rich. I'm glad that we just made this the entire episode because it was worthy. And there were plenty of sticky leaves and shitty minutes, I think, in the episode. Maybe it's the audience's job to pick those out. It's like a scavenger hunt. <laughs> yeah, I like for that. For shits and stickies. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, well, cool. So I agree. I Like I said, I've talked about Darius on the podcast before. He's uh, he's become like a muse in the flesh here <laughs> in Sydney. Um, so uh, so now I've, I've introduced him to the rest of the podcast world that subscribes. So yeah, so thank you guys for listening. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can. Owls underscore at underscore Don. You can follow us on Instagram. Same. Owls underscore at underscore Don. You can email us. Owls at Podcast at gmail.com. Um, also, you can uh, leave us a review, and, and if you give us a five-star rating, and in your review you ask a question, Troy and I will address that question at the top of the episode, the next episode. And what else am I forgetting? There's something else, I know. You can also support us on patreon.com slash owls at dawn. And uh, I can only think of one other thing, dude. Oh, what do we got to do? Dawn, yeah, Mary Constance.